Well, good morning. It is good to be back with everybody this morning. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 6 tonight, and uh, we're going to actually cover quite a bit of ground. But uh, before we open this, um, I don't know if anybody here, I was talking to Kenny White before the service started, and he was saying that he is like a, a time management expert. Like he's able to just kind of look at things and see how things, um, how long something's going to take him. And I got to thinking about that, and it's like, you know, when I was growing up, I too was a time management expert. Like when I was in the sixth grade and working my way through high school, like whenever the teacher would be like, all right, this is going to be homework. I would say, watch me. I'm not taking it home for homework because when I'm home, I'm home. I don't want to bring school home with me. So I'm going to get it done there in class. And so I did that. And I mean, like I'd work on it because when I was home, that time was precious. I wanted to make sure I had everything lined out. I knew what I was going to do, which usually was nothing, but I was going to be a pro at doing nothing while I was home. And there was always this one little thing that interfered with my time management and it's those stinking showers like good hygiene is important I mean I just didn't get it like I'd be home and it's like I got all this stuff planned I'm ready to go with all of this stuff and then mom would be like all right it's time to get ready for bed go hit the showers and it's like doggone it like this is five minutes wasted on getting showered up and cleaned up and I don't need this mind of a sixth grader 33 year old Andy realizes the importance of good hygiene so don't worry I smell good today at least according to me. But it's like, okay, so I go and I would take the shower and it's like, man, you know what? This like taking time doing all this stuff, it could be so much faster if I would just cut out the hair. My hair is not that important. Like it's going gray and I'm gradually getting more and more bald. So apparently it's mad at me and maybe I should have cleaned it a little more, but I'd be there and it'd be like, you know what? I'm just gonna like wash my body and then I'll call that good. So I did that one day and I, I went back into the living room and my mom was there and she was like, boy, that was a really quick shower. And I was like, I'm a pro at showering now. I get it done really quick. And she's like, well, did, did you like wash your hair? Yes, I did, mom. And she's like, okay, cool. Go ahead. And so then later on, it was like maybe five minutes later, I was just like, I got away with that. Like, mom, I love you so much. Let me just go hug you. And my mom's not very tall, but I was shorter than her at this time. So when we go to hug, her head lands right on my hair and I'm ratted out by my own body. And she smells and she's like, it does not smell like you washed your hair. And I was like, ooh, I am busted. But it's really not that big of a deal, mom. Like, really, I'll I'll get it next time. I wasn't even that dirty today. I sat in school for seven hours. I mean, I didn't even break a sweat. So what's the big deal? But I was busted. And I really thought, like, mom, it's not that big of a deal. Like, yeah, I told you a little white lie. Like, it's not that big of a deal that I said that. Just, can we overlook this? Mom did not overlook that. I had to go shower and then I had to go to bed early. So much for my time management. But we're going to be looking in Genesis chapter 6 and we're going to cover Genesis 6 through 9 this morning because we're going to see that really what we think of little white lies or little sins or anything like that, God has a totally different view of. And we need to grasp God's concept of sin. 
I mean, you look in society today and you, need, you don't need to look far that God's word is becoming less and less relevant according to society, that God's word is becoming less and less um, meaningful and truthful even, that society is like, man, that doesn't matter. I mean, you don't have to look very far to see the institution of marriage has been totally transformed in society away from what God's word says. And people are like, it's fine. It's not that big of a deal. Go all the way. I mean, you can look at any sin that is happening today and people are getting really, really good at justifying it and saying it's really not that big of a deal. But I think we need to look back in what God's word says and see this is how big of a deal sin really is. James 2.10 tells us, even if you are able to keep all of the law, but you break one commandment, you are guilty of breaking the entire law. And so even if you're like, I am 99.99% perfect, but there's that one little white lie that you said, mom, I put shampoo in my hair and you didn't, you are actually guilty of breaking all of the commandments. And it's a serious thing. So serious that we're going to see how serious God takes it in our passage today. I'm not going to read all of Genesis 6 through 9. I encourage you to go do that. There is so much information in there. But what we're going to do is we're just going to look through it and we're going to see God's view of sin. We're going to see this is how serious God looks at sin. But even in the midst of the seriousness that God sees sin, we're also going to see grace. We're going to see that God gave grace back then, and we're also going to see that God gives grace to us here and now today. And then also we're going to see that God is faithful to his promise, despite us continuing to sin and continuing to fall short. And so just to get you caught up and kind of let you know just the the broad 30,000 foot view of what happens in Genesis 6 through 9. I hope you read it later on. But so in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and God filled the earth with animals and plants and fish and water. And God put man in the garden and God said, do not eat of that tree. That's the commandment. Do not eat of that tree. And then these slithering little demon serpent snake things, which are still evil today, came slithering up and they were like, or not they, he, Satan, was like, hey, did God really say not to eat of any tree? And Eve is like, well, no, God said we can't even touch that tree or eat of it. And he, Satan's like, well, the reason God said that is because when you do, you'll be like God. You're not really going to die, but you're going to be like God. So man, just go eat of it. And so Eve, looking at it, sees that it is good. And so she takes a bite of it and she gives it to her husband who is with her. And then God comes looking for them and God calls out and they hear God walking, trying to find them. So they hide, they make garments of uh, plants on them, fig leaves. And so they hide, God calls out. Then he says, who told you you were naked? They said, the serpent. Well, how did you know? Because we ate and we saw. And then God has to offer a sacrifice and then God expels them from the Garden of Eden. So then we're generations and generations down the line here, and got to get my names right. Adam had Seth, and Seth had a child, and so on and so forth, and eventually we get to this man named Adam. And Adam is living, not Adam, see, my names are going to go so bad. We're going back in time. We get to this man named Noah, 
And Noah's living in a wicked generation. And so God says, I regret that I created man. I'm going to have to wipe them all out. But there's this one guy, Noah, who is... It's no, yeah. See, I've been saying Moses in my head the whole time too. So I'm sorry. If ever I say any name other than Noah, I probably mean Noah. But <laughs> my mind is flustered on that name right now. But anyway, so God tells Noah, hey, I need you to build this really big boat. And it's going to protect you because I'm going to bring the floods and I'm going to wipe out all of the earth because it pains me that I have created this people because they are so wicked. They are doing such evil that I regret even having made them. But Noah, you and your family, I'm going to save. So build this boat, 120 years. He's building the boat. Then they get in the boat. God sends the floods. It covers all of the earth. And then for one whole year, Noah and his family are in the boat until the waters start to recede. And then God sends, or Noah, see, Noah sends out a bird and it never comes back. And then he sees dry land and Noah comes out of the boat, offers a sacrifice to God. And God smells it, says it is pleasing and says, I will never again wipe out the earth in this form. And again, there's so much more in that. That is like the really broad 30,000 foot view there. But what we're going to see is how serious God views sin. So if you'll join me, we're just going to pray real quick. And then we'll, we'll dive into this a little deeper. So Father God, we just thank you so much, God, for who you are. God, we do pray here in this moment, speak to us. As we just dive into what your word has to say a little more, God, may it be your word that is spoken. And God, may we have come here not just to sit back and hear something, but God, may we have come so that we can be transformed by your word as your people together collectively. So God, I just pray work in our hearts and allow us to open up our hearts to allow you in so that you can speak to us. God, we love you so much, and it's in your name that we pray all these things. Amen. So what happened is that, you know, as I said, the, the earth just grew increasingly, increasingly wicked. We see this in specifically Genesis 6, 5 through 6, where it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. And so God looks out and he's like, man, these are the people that I created. I created them to glorify me. And all they're doing is glorifying themselves more and more in wickedness and evil and, in, and just going more and more that direction. Except for Noah, who has found favor from God. And so God's like, man, I, I got to get rid of them. I got to wipe them out. It hurts so bad. I cannot con allow for this to continue on. And a lot of people, a lot of times are like, wow, isn't that a little extreme of God to do? Like he, he built all this creation and then he's just like, man, I'm going to wipe it all out. I'm going to get rid of, isn't that a little severe? Because us people, we're actually pretty good. Like, uh, I heard it said the other day that, like, most people, I think it was Anne Frank, she went through the tragedies that she went through. And in her book, she ends up saying, I still believe that people are good. And it's like, we get in that mindset, like, hey, I'm actually pretty good. Like, yeah, I'm not perfect, but I'm actually pretty good. But James tells us that if you are able to uh, hold to all of the law, but you break one, you're not actually good. You are 
guilty of breaking all of the law. You're guilty of breaking it all. How many times have we done that? Where it's like, that's really not that big of a thing. And we, we try and downplay it. It's like, God, really, it's not that big of a deal. Just, you know, don't make me feel better about this, God. It's not that big of a deal. And yet we see here what God's response to sin is. We again need to see God's view of sin. That it is a big deal. Even the smallest sin that we ever commit, in our term the smallest sin, is still a big deal. Because God is holy and God is perfect. And so God set a standard of perfection that he desires for us all to live up to. And it's not like, well, they couldn't do it. So therefore, hey guys, stop being perfect. And now I just want you to try. And you know what? Just keep trying. Just try. That's all I'm asking for. Just try. God never did that. His standard is still the same. Perfection. We're told in Peter, be holy as I am holy. Be set apart as God is set apart. Therefore, in perfection, our lives should be perfect. This is how God views sin. That we should not commit any sin. And so in the beginning, God created everything good. And then everything went bad. And so God said, I'm going to wipe it all out. And it's like, well, why does he get to do that? Because he is God. Well, why does he get to set this standard? Because he is God. He created it all. When you create your own world, then you can make the rules that you want. Until then, you're subject to God. And so God set this standard of perfection. And so we need to realize the severity of our sin. I really want to hammer this in. The severity of our sin. We need to realize that anytime we commit a sin, it is not just against another person. David, whenever he slept with Bathsheba, again, we talked about this real briefly last week. He's up on the rooftop. He's supposed to be out fighting as the kings fight, but instead he's home on the rooftop looking at Bathsheba. And he says, man, she looks good. Bring her to me. He sleeps with her. She gets pregnant. Long story short, he ends up getting her husband killed. He sends her husband out on the front lines so that he will die and he gets killed. And David thinks he got away with it. Until he meets the prophet Nathan, who tells him the story. And then David is the guilty man in the story. So David says, bring me the person that is guilty of that. And Nathan says, you are that man. And David's response in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. He does not say, oh man, I have wronged Bathsheba. He does not say, Nathan, I'm so sorry to you. I've been guilty against you. He says, 2 Samuel 12, 13, I have sinned against the Lord. My offense was against God Almighty. And it's like, wait a minute. No, you, you had Uriah killed. No, his offense was against God. David says this later in Psalm 51, 4, which he wrote after this occurrence. And he said, against you, talking to God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And so when we sin, it is not just the person that we offend that we are sinning against, but it is the perfect and holy God. It should change the way we view sin. Not just, well, I told a lie to my mom, or, you know, I, I cheated on this person, or, you know, I wronged this person. No, we have sinned against God. 
We have committed an offense against the holy God. Every sin we commit is never just against another person, but ultimately it is always against God. Every time we commit an offense, it's never, I've wronged this person, just this person. There is some wrong there, but it is always, I have wronged God. And the severity of that offense is, all, of that offense is always found in the, in the value of what he, we have wronged. We watched American Gospel and they, they explained it this way and it was just like eye-opening to me. But just imagine that I have a rock and it's like, man, it's a nice rock. I love this rock. I picked it up off the gravel or off the ground and you take a key and you scratch that rock. Nothing's really going to happen. I might be a little upset with you. Now imagine that you take that same key that you scratched my rock with and you decide to go out there and scratch my car with it. You know, I'm going to be a little unhappy. There might be some financial reparations that need to happen, but there's not a lot that's going to happen. Now imagine you take that same key You go to a Lamborghini dealership and you just run it right down the side of a Lamborghini. There's a lot of expense there. My paychecks don't cover that paint job. And so the value, it's the same key, the same offense, but the severity and the, 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 the result of it or the, the consequence of it is greatly determined in the value of what is being offended. Now go back to my little white lie. I tell my mom that white lie, I have to go shower. I tell a police officer a lie, I might get arrested. I tell the Supreme Court a lie, I might never get out of jail again. I don't know. I hope they're finding mercy in that day, but it depends on the severity. You tell God a lie, the penalty is death. You are deserving of eternal condemnation. Because the severity of the offense is determined by the value of the offended and every offense that we commit is always against a holy God with an infinite value. That is how we should view sin. Not that I wronged them, but that I have ultimately wronged God. Romans 3, 10 through 12 tells us, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So all of us are guilty of this offense, of the ultimate offense against a holy God. And then in verse 23, it says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then Romans 6, 23a says, For the wages of these sins is death. And so it's like, well, okay, I haven't died yet. Adam and Eve, they lived a long time and then they died. But it's not even talking about a physical death. It's talking about an eternal spiritual death. One of condemnation in hell itself. And so when we wonder why would God flood the earth like this? Why would God do something like that? I believe the right answer or the, the, the different question that is more accurate should be, why has God not done that to me? Why am I still alive today? Because I'm just as guilty. I mean, I might want to look at them and be like, yeah, but they were extremely wicked. Like they were Hitler and uh, all these evil people at one time. And it's like, if you have kept all the commandments, but broken one, you are just as guilty. You are just as deserving of eternal hell. 
But the reason God has not done that to us is because of grace. And when you look at the story of Noah, you see grace in that story. Because just today, God would be totally as justified if he said, I'm done with the world, I'm going to start over. I'm going to do, do it right this time. I'm going to make robots that have no choice but to honor me and glorify me. And that would be a whole lot less of a headache for people. But it's like, you know what? I, God would be justified if he did that. But he did not. Instead, God showed grace. He could have said, Noah, you know what? You're not even perfect. So don't build a boat. Die with the rest of them. But instead, God gave Noah grace. Genesis 6 verse 8, it says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That's grace. Because what did Noah do up to this point? Was Noah perfect? No. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He was the recipient of God's grace. And I, as I was thinking about this all, I thought, huh, you know, the vessel that saved Noah was made out of wood. That's kind of the mark of God's grace upon Noah. Because God's like, hey, Noah, I'm going to send this flood and everybody's going to die. And the way that you're going to be saved is if you build this boat made out of wood. That's what's going to save you is that boat. Me working through you, telling you, build this boat. And so Noah receiving God's grace was demonstrated through the work of something made out of wood. And even in God's wrath with the flood, God was patient with the world still. So God wasn't even like, I'm just going to wipe them all out right here, right now. Noah, poof, here's an ark. Go in. I'm going to kill everybody. But instead, for 120 years, God was patient with them still. 2 Peter 2.5 tells us, If he, this being God, did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. That word herald of righteousness is like a preacher. I believe Noah was also preaching while he was doing this. Like, hey guys, repent, turn away from this. There's a flood coming. He was preaching God's glory and God's righteousness. For 120 years, he was doing that. And then 2 Peter 3, 8 through 10, it says, Do not overlook this one fact that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any would perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so God gave 120 years for people to be saved, but nobody was. It was still the same eight, but God gave them that chance. It's like, hey, what are you building, Noah? Well, it's this boat because there's going to be a lot of water coming. And if you repent and receive God, maybe you can be saved too. You can come in here with us. Just turn from your wickedness and come to God. Man, you're an idiot, Noah. We've never seen anything like that. I'll swim it out. Like now. But God gave grace to them still. God wants for nobody to perish. God gave grace. His patience. He's offered us grace here today even. Romans 10, 9 through 10. Nope, sorry. Romans 5, verse 6 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8 says, God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10 says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. 
And then Ephesians 2, 4 through 9, God says, But God, being rich in his mercy, because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then Galatians 3.13, it says, Christ redeemed us us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Remember, we were talking about the recipient or the, the, the reception of God's grace to Noah was through the ark built out of a tree. The receipt, uh, the, re, the receipt that we get of God's grace is also done through a cross built out of a tree. When Jesus went and died on that cross, it was the payment for us so that we did not have to go through this. It was where God sent his son so that we could have eternal life. It was offered to us then and there. The rest of Romans 6.23, it said, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Noah received this grace through faith. And we receive this grace through faith. And Noah obeyed as a result of that faith. Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, it says, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. He walked with God. Then verse 22, Noah did this. God said, hey, you need to build an ark? Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. And then again, verse seven, or chapter 7, verse 5, it says, Noah did all that God commanded him because Noah had faith. God said, hey, I'm going to send a flood. And Noah could have been like, prove it first, God. I'm not going to make a fool of myself building a boat for 120 years. That's a lot of work, God. I don't have power tools right now. And so it's like, God, prove that you're going to send a flood first. But no, instead, Noah had faith. We're told that in Hebrews eleven seven, it said, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah had faith in God. And so therefore, he was the recipient of God's grace. When we place our faith in God, we become recipients of God's grace. So Noah, he, he builds this ark, he brings his family into it, and God sends the floods, and it covers the entire globe with water. Nothing that has breath in its lungs survives. But yet God is faithful to his promise. And that's our third point. We see that God is always faithful to his promise because God said, Noah, I will save you. I'm going to make a covenant with you. In Genesis 8, 1 or 6, 18, sorry, it says, I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your son's wives with you. God was faithful to Noah. And then in Genesis 8, 1, it says, God remembered Noah. 
God was faithful to his promise. God said, I'm going to send a flood, but I'm going to save you, Noah, and I'm going to start the world over through you, Noah, and God was faithful to that. God brought Noah out of the ark. God gave him a new future, and God gave him new commandments. He said, hey, be fruitful and multiply all of this stuff. Go. Walk in my will. And so we see that when Noah was the recipient of God's grace, God gave him a new future after that. And God set the rainbow in the heavens as a promise. Never again will I do this. Never again will I wipe the world out in this manner. So we can trust God. Genesis 8, 21, God said this, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done, while the earth remains seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So God's made that promise so we can trust him in that. And again, the same thing is true to us today, that God makes a promise to us. That we can be saved through the work of Jesus and that when we place our faith in him, he gives us a new future. He gives us a new hope. He gives us a new world that we have coming for us. Right now, we're maybe living in the ark where it's like, man, I don't know when, the, when I'm going to see that land come again, but I trust God that it will come. And he tells us in Revelation that there is a new heaven and a new earth being prepared for his people. And he is faithful to that promise. And even though there won't be a flood again, God still made a promise. He made a promise that there's going to come a day again where those who are not with him will be judged. And they will be judged on what they have done and their works will never measure up. It's like, hey God, man, I did so much great things and we're told in Matthew chapter seven, people are gonna be like, hey, we cast out demons, we perform miracles, we gave to the poor, we did all this cool stuff, God, for you. And Jesus is gonna say, depart from me, you who work in lawlessness, I never knew you. So there's gonna come a day where that is gonna happen. It's not gonna be a flood, but when you read Revelation, there's gonna be stars falling on the earth and it's gonna be a consuming fire and the beast is gonna be thrown into hell in which hell was initially made for, but there are going to be those who do not receive Christ that will also sadly join him. That is a truth. That is a promise from God, but an even greater promise one that I'm going to hold on to is that I don't have to fear about that. Is that those who have placed their faith in Christ do not have to fear that day because we will not be going there. Because just as much as God promised, never again will I flood the earth, God also promised that it is through our faith, not the works of what we do, but through our faith in Christ that saves us. Romans 10, 9 through 10. It says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And then verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is a promise. That when you say, God, I need you, just as Gene was talking about, our human pride tells us, I don't need God. I can do this on my own. I can work on this hard or good enough. It's never going to measure up until we're able to say, God, I need you. 
And then we stop relying on our own efforts and we start just trusting in the work that God is doing through us. And so we place our faith in him saying, God, I believe you. I believe that the work that you did at the cross is sufficient to save my life. And so therefore, God, I live for you through my faith. Romans 8, 3 through 4, it says, God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. And so we take that, that God, your payment of Jesus' blood on the cross is sufficient for me and I'm gonna live in that. And so we need to do the same thing today that we, or we see today the same thing that happened in Noah's day. I mean, you don't have to look far. And you, again, you see wickedness is starting to just grow. And we're seeing that what is called good is actually evil, and what is called evil is actually good. But we stand firm in God's word. We hold fast to his promises. And we know that there is a wrath coming, but we also know that for those who are in Christ, we do not need to worry about that. We do not live in fear because we know that we have the love of Jesus in us. And so I would just say, look at the days of Noah and look at the days that we have now, and there's not a lot of difference. But Jesus actually tells us in Matthew chapter 4 or chapter 24 that it's going to be very similar. Because just think about the days of Noah. Those guys out there like, man, I got tomorrow to straighten my life out. Like, man, I'll, not today. I don't need to do it today. Like Noah, yeah, he's been talking. He's been doing this little repent, turn from God. I'm building this ark. Come be saved. Man, the dude is a whack job. I'm just going to live life now. And someday when I'm gray and old, then I'll give my life over to Christ. But I'm going to live in the moment. But then that very day, the floods came and their life was taken from them. And Jesus uses this as an example in Matthew 24. He says, for as we're in the days of Noah... So will be the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and they were drinking. They were marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Two men are going to be in a field. One will be taken, one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming. And then Peter, he tells us in 2 Peter chapter 3, he says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring you up to, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, scoffers are going to come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where's this promise of the coming? It's been a long time, Jesus 
still isn't coming back. Maybe he's never going to come. Maybe it's not true. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And so that's going to happen. I don't know if I'm going to finish this sentence or the next, or if we're going to get home. I don't know if we're going to get tomorrow. I don't know how long. Maybe I'll get to see how many years do we have left, Heather? 59? Maybe I'll see 60 years of marriage. Maybe I'll get that. I don't know. The thing is that I'm going to live every day as if it's the last. And I hope that if you are not promised, maybe God won't come back. Maybe he'll just take you home by having you get hit by a drunk driver. I'm not saying that's God's will, but crazy things happen. You're not guaranteed to drive home. But what you are guaranteed is that you can be saved here and now. If you place your faith in Christ, not by your works, not by giving attendance, but by placing your faith in Christ. So that if you are, if you're not even guaranteed your next five seconds, if you place your faith in Christ saying, God, I believe that the price that Jesus paid on the cross covered my sins and I place my faith in you. I give my life over to you. I believe you are saved. That's what we're told. Romans 10, 9 and 10. It is by believing in your heart. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. You will be saved. And so God is placing that call on your life right now. As Noah was a herald of righteousness saying, repent, because there is a coming judgment. I want to proclaim here and now, there is a coming judgment. Repent. Give your life over to Christ. Give him your heart. Give him your all. But I also want to say, don't do it for fear of hell. That's a good enough reason. But do it because God wants relationship with you. God loves you so much that he gave his only begotten son so that you would not have to perish, but have eternal life. And Jesus tells us in John 17, three, this is eternal life that they may know you and the one whom you have sent your son, Jesus Christ. So repent, give your life over to him so that you can have life and life abundantly found in Jesus. Because you're not promised your next breath. You're not promised 60 years of marriage. But what God did promise is that he made the way possible. And that way is the blood of Jesus. Father God, we thank you for making that way possible. And God, I pray if there's anybody in this room who has not given their life over to you, God, if they have not said that they believe in you, that you are the Christ, the son of the living God, that you have the words of eternal life, God, that you are their savior. God, I pray, may they do that here in this moment. Right now, God, give them the heart to give their life over to you. Let them just say, God, I believe in you and I want to live for you. But God, I pray that they don't stop there. 
but that they publicly profess it, that with their mouth they confess that you are Lord. And so God, may they just have the courage that if they have made that decision to come and let this body of believers know that they have given their life over to you so that we can, as your word says, encourage them daily and exhort them all the more. So God, if you are working on anybody's heart, and I believe that you are, give them the courage to respond so that when that day of judgment comes and we are standing before you, God, it is not a spirit of fear, of being afraid, but God, rather one of just awe that we get to worship you for the rest of our lives because of the sacrifice that Jesus made. And so God, I just pray, do your work in your people and God, just give us hearts to respond to what you're calling us to do. And it is in your name that we pray, amen.